Hello and welcome back to The Crash Podcast, which is usually all about clinical radiology academics speaking honestly. I'm your host, Tom Term, as I consult and radiologist in Norwich and the Royal College of Radiologists Röntgen Professor from 2020. Now, all along on the podcast, we've been meeting and talking with people that have been making their way through a career with imaging and research, exploring their lives, motivations and their ideas. So this episode, with a bit of an end of term feel as we close in on the end of the year, I thought we'd do something different by doing the same. Now, before you say what, the clue is in the title of the episode. If you haven't already noticed, go and take another look. Today, we are spinning back in time as we embrace a very different facet of my favourite imaging technique, CT. That's computer tomography. Going on a journey of discovery through non-clinical applications that have taught us something about our history, our world and ourselves that I think frames CT as the remarkably versatile and insightful tool that it is. It's basically translational research on steroids. It's Crash at the Museum. To take us on this journey through the ages, we have managed to pin down not one, not two, but three Time Lords that have all embraced CT imaging in their own fields of research. First of all, it's welcome to Ashkan Pakzad, PhD student in medical imaging computation at the Centre for Medical Image Computing at University College London. Hi, Ashkan. Hello. So how long left on the PhD, Ashkan? Uh, how are you getting on with that? Oh, we're just getting up to the end now. Just uh, the the last bit feels like a marathon. Scary times, but um, it goes quickly by the end, doesn't it? Well, yes, that's what I'm hoping. (laughs) Good stuff. Right. Well, next, it's welcome to Dan O'Flynn, X-ray imaging scientist at the British Museum in London. Hi, Dan. Hello. Well, look, Dan, that's possibly the coolest job title I think I've ever heard. Definitely something a bit Marvel slash DC about that. You're not going to get bitten by any creepy crawlies climbing out of coffins or anything at work, are you? It hasn't happened yet. Excellent. So, and last and by absolutely no means least, it's another reacquaintance for me on the Crash podcast as we welcome Julie Dawson, former head of conservation and scientific research at the Fitzwilliam Museum in Cambridge and Levy Hume Emeritus Fellow and an affiliated researcher on the museum's Egyptians Coffin Project. Hi, Julie. How are you? Hello, I'm fine, thank you. Yeah, it's very nice to be here. Thank you for joining us. Nat, retired but not retired. That clearly speaks for your love of your work, Julie. Yeah, today actually, I've had, I've just come up upstairs in the museum because we're actually getting the the big coffin set out that I'm going to talk about today because we need to do some more work on it. So I've left them all removing the coffin <laughs> set from the gallery, which is a bit... Um, scary but you know we know what we're doing yeah nerve-wracking but very exciting times yeah thanks julie said i'm looking forward to talking about that as we move along so ashkan let's come back to you and let's start with you why don't you tell us a bit more about yourself your background and what you get up to in your current role i'm doing a phd in medical image computing as you said which basically involves me trying to apply all sorts of ai and algorithms to huge sets of data in order to try and glean something from them and hopefully help radiologists do their job a bit bit more in a different way. Okay, and how did you come to that PhD position? What did you do as an undergrad? Um, I did an undergrad in medical physics, UCL, and I'd sort of always planned to be doing imaging or at least some sort of physics approach to imaging, and that's how I found myself at UCL and staying there the whole time. Yeah, but that doesn't quite answer how you found yourself wound up in this world that we're in today. Were there any early signs that you had that kind of interest around the edges, around the margins? Ah, well, yes, I've always um, had an interest for something with history, especially heritage and objects. Um, Always had some fascination. And in my undergrad, I had an option of what project I want to take. 
and um, Professor Adam Gibson, who is now got a split time at with medical physics department and Institute of Sustainable Heritage, proposed a project, and I took it up because it sounded interesting to work on an ancient computer. Wow. Well, uh, I'm really looking forward to finding out a bit more about that. I also played with as an undergrad the possibility of doing, it's a bit of a giveaway, Egyptology is my part two, but it was quite a stretch. I looked at some of the, the previous exams that I might have to pass and I thought, I'm not sure I know that much about town planning in ancient Egypt. So I I, I stuck with psychology instead. But great. Yeah, those early signs are there and it's fantastic that you flourished into this very diverse um, application and involvement. So thank you so much for the introduction Ashkan. Now it's time for that bit of the podcast where we line up our guests one by one and expect them in foolhardy fashion to run headlong into our very own crash test. It's a familiar but slightly different format for this episode. In keeping with the theme, we've laid a little bit of extra on top to excavate so that the listeners uh, can join in also. What we have over here is a properly pimped up crash test grid that I've also posted on my Twitter feed in three parts. So to play along, go and check it out. That's at Tom Termazai. There's still numbers for our guests to pick. That's four each time and uh, a question to answer. But in a little twist, behind each number is a picture of some ancient or historical artifact for our guests to try and identify with, if they can, its provenance. And at stake, as usual, is nothing but pride. Uh, listeners, play along and test your own knowledge of world history and its artifacts. Is everyone clear? Yes? Good, okay, <laughs> right. Here we go, Ashkan, what number would you like to choose? I'd like to go for number four, please. Number four. Okay. So here we go. Can you see that? What do you think's going on behind there? I think that's a couple of archers, possibly chariot archers from an ancient Assyrian relief. Uh, bang on. <laughs> this is absolutely fantastic. Yep, you're right on the money there. Okay, but now for the question, which historical empire would you most like to experience firsthand? It would have to be the Persian Empire for sure, um, going back to my heritage as an Iranian. Yes, yes, I'm going to shout out Restless History Podcast. They have strong Iranian links with Professor Ali Ansari. I don't know if you listen to that, but there's always a great episode when Persia is involved to find out about the fantastically rich history. Excellent. Okay, what's the next one? Oh, um, I'll go for number seven. Number seven. Okay, you'll have noticed that that's not really an ancient artifact. It is, in fact, a L plate. It is indeed. Right. So are you aware of this? I'm now going to ask you and everyone else, how many times did you fail your driving test? Uh, zero times, because I yes. had to do it during COVID, which meant there was a massive backlog. So the pressure was immense to pass immediately. <laughs> for you or for the examiners to push everyone through? I think it was for everyone and everyone, anyone who's relying on me to drive. Right, good, good. Okay, nothing like having the heat on. So Dan, can I ask you, how many times did you fail your driving test? Weirdly enough, the same as Ashkan. I, I passed first time during the post-COVID lockdown period. Oh, so this is all re rather recent then? I'm feeling quite old. Oh, right, okay. Uh, Julie, let's come over to you. How many times did you fail? Well, um, to be boring, I am afraid I passed first time as well, but not during COVID. I passed my driving test in 1986. So, What was the car that you were driving? Do you remember? No. 
it was it was quite small I remember that which is a great relief to me actually well well done all of you I mean that's it very much within the high traditions of having not failed so well done okay Ashkan let's get back to some well I say serious but more serious business you've got two more which one would you like to go for I'll go for number nine so can you see what that is going on there I'd say the Rosetta Stone Bang on. Fantastic. And do you know, in tune with that, any ancient languages? Don't know any ancient languages, I'm afraid. I can uh, speak Farsi, but that's that's derived from the, from ancient Avestan and others, sure. Well, it's all part of the Indo-European branch. Let's go for the next one. Your last one, in fact. Which one are you going to go for there? Oh, I'll go for number six, surely. What else can I take? Yep, number six. <laughs> yeah, you uh, are you gaming this slightly, having uh, looking at the images and choosing ones that you know. Okay, what's this one then? Am I not supposed to be doing it that way? No, you can do whichever way you want. You've got to go first. <laughs> well, I was hoping uh, the uh, ancient Egyptian stuff would uh, be better for others. So that is the Antikythera mechanism. It is. And as you sort of hinted at, we are going to be exploring that in a little bit more detail. But the question that comes with that is, what was your first computer? It was a Dell laptop, I can tell you for sure. I'm of the generation where this would have been like an, an Amstrad 1614 or something that just appeared one day on my grandfather's desk, <laughs> which I wasted many a long summer. Okay, look, thank you so much, Ashkan, for doing the crash test. Brilliant stuff. Dan, let's move on to you. Why don't you tell us more about yourself, your background, and what you get up in your current role? Sure. Thanks, Tom. Um, my My career path is a little bit unusual, I suppose, although there's some overlap with Ashkan, funnily enough. So I did a PhD in physics. And then after my PhD, I worked as a postdoctoral researcher in the medical physics and biomedical engineering department at University College London. And my role there was very much as an x-ray physicist. So using all different types of detectors and measurement techniques to look at how x-rays interact with matter. And that was you know, medical related, sometimes aerospace related, sometimes security related. And then as, as I was doing my postdoc, the British Museum was building a massive x-ray imaging lab just down the road and they were looking for someone to run the lab. So I put in an application and here I am still. So my current job is x-ray imaging scientist in the British Museum and my job, I suppose it's to look under the surface of the collection using x-rays to learn about ancient civilizations, ancient people. And that can be to learn how objects were made, how they were used, what their current condition is. And if we have things that are inside wrappings or hidden inside boxes, then it's my job to, to try and find out what's there. Well, that's absolutely fascinating. One thing piqued my interest. You said about the security-related applications of the X-ray imaging. Give us a little insight into what that involves. Sure. I was involved in a project with the UK Home Office and we were looking at novel ways of detecting explosives hidden inside bags using X-ray techniques that are a bit more sophisticated than the typical X-ray scanner you would have in an airport. Thank you very much, Dan. So I'm going to put you through the rigours of the crash test now. Okay, would you like to choose your first number? I'll take number 11, please. Can you tell me what that is? I better get this one right. I think this is the death mask of Tutankhamun. It is. Have you any idea how old that one is? No, I don't. I don't know. It's, it's, it's... 
it's I think one of the oldest we've got here. It's 14th century BCE. And when you go and look at the picture of that, that is just absolutely remarkable, isn't it? Some of these things are just timeless. Well, look, do you believe in curses? No, I don't think I do. That's a boring scientist answer, isn't it? But no, I don't. <laughs> I was going to say scientists had on, but I do notice, as I sort of said, as we were working up our introductions, that you do have a cat over your right hand shoulder to ward off evil spirits. So I don't believe you. I don't believe you at all. <laughs> maybe, maybe a little bit, a little bit of a believer in fate, perhaps. OK, well, yeah, that's enough of my Hollywood knowledge of ancient Egyptian iconography. So, Dan, your second number. I'll take number 12, please. So have you an idea what that is? It's a statue of a Buddha. I'm not sure mm -hmm. where it's from. I'm going to say China. Oh, okay, all right. Now, this one is the Kamakura Daibutsu, or the Great Buddha of Kamakura, and that's from the 13th century common era in Japan. So that's 2,600 years since the last artifact, which I just, again, I find gobsmacking. And um, that's something I actually saw over the summer. That's why I put that one in. Okay, so the question for this one, Dan, is what do you think is your favourite historical iconography from Japan? My favourite historical iconography from Japan... It's not very historical, but I think Hokusai's The Great Wave is one of the most iconic images of art in the world and is quintessentially Japanese, but also has very interesting ties to Europe. So I think that one. And I've got that up in the house. I'm absolutely huge fan of that one. How many have you done? Right, okay, lost track. Yeah, here you go, you got another one. Uh, I'll take number two, please. Right, what's going on there? I think they are boomerangs. Yes, absolutely, they are Australian Aboriginal boomerangs, oldest found around 20,000 years ago. And the question that comes with that is, what can you not bear to throw away? Oh, the classic. I can't throw away old cables, even though I don't have any equipment <laughs> that uses them anymore. Open the drawer. There they are. <laughs> Fine. Excellent. And you have got one more. What's going to be your last one? I'll take number three, please. What have we got there? They're coins. I'm not sure where they're from. Are they ancient Roman coins, possibly? I'll uh, zoom in a little bit. Can you see? No. No. Okay, look, they're Spanish. They're Spanish. Okay, what's the most valuable thing you have ever found? The most valuable thing I've ever found in my job or? Well, you see, that could be part of the spoiler there, couldn't wow. it? I mean, for me, for me, it's like, a. I think I found a watch somewhere, uh, but that's hardly exciting. Yeah, exactly. I've not found anything valuable on the street. If we, if we can go a bit more profound, I've had very um, amazing experiences whilst travelling. So I think seeing the Himalayas for the first time is probably ah. the most valuable thing I've ever seen. Yeah, that's a fantastic metaphorical answer. Dan, thank you so much for, for doing the crash test. That's great. OK, let's come on to you, Julie. Please tell us a little bit more about yourself, your background and what you've been getting up to in your roles and what you currently get up to. Okay, so I'm an archaeological conservator, and I think um, conservation, you know, is something that seems to be in the media a lot these days, and you know, gets more exposure in um, in museums and historic buildings that people visit. So I think people, more people, understand what conservators do. Uh, conservators do, and particularly. You know, though that we have conservators of things like oil paintings or textiles, different um, different specialisms. So, but the um, for the conservator of archaeological material, um, you know, we work across lots of materials and object types, and the sort of uh, common factor between them is that they've been in some sort of burial environment. So it's a sl it's a slightly different type of um, specialism, and. 
I think the conservator's job in whatever branch they're in is really to arrest or um, slow down the deterioration of historical archaeological material, first by preventive means, by trying to control the environment that's around them. Um, but, uh, but, but also when they've suffered the sort of ravages of time, you, we have to use more active interventions um, by processes such as uh, cleaning, stabilizing, sometimes a degree of restoration on the, on the works. And to be able to do all those things, um, both the passive and the active ones, of course, we have to understand the materials that we are, um, from which the objects are made and how these deteriorate. And we needed to be able to investigate and record both the original sort of technology, but how they've been changed over time by those natural processes, but also, of course, by human intervention. So it's sort of like building, you know, the object's biography from its, from its physical state. Um, and we investigate by close investigation, imaging techniques, analytical techniques, of course, working with specialist scientists. And in the sort of, um, in the subsequent practical work that we do, um, uh, the, those processes I mentioned, like you know, cleaning, repair, stabilization, we also, of course, have to understand not only the materials that the objects are made from, but we have to understand the materials that we're going to use in close association with those objects, like, um, you know, um, adhesives or materials we might use for, for support um, to make sure, on solvents and so on, to make sure that they are not in any way going to um, damage the objects. Um, the other thing, of course, that you need is a very high level of manual skills to be able to carry out those sorts of practical processes. And, um, and we work within a strict sort of ethical framework as well to ensure that we're not falsifying material or compromising future investigations or any further treatment that, that may be needed um, for, you know, on the object. And I suppose you know, detailed documentation of everything we do is critical as I think it is in most fields of work actually these days and and we know from our you know, experience with material that's been treated in the past the amount of detective work you have to do to understand what people have done to objects is sometimes truly epic. So this detective work must involve a wide range of tools as I think we're obviously going to come on to talk about today but from yeah. microscopic to large scale so what's that range like? Well, that depends very much on what it is that you are looking at, and obviously, as we'll find out. But I, but you know, the key thing, the absolutely key thing, for, first of all, is very close observation, um, and usually, and we use just um, um, a, a stereo microscope a lot because you always need to be examining the object on the macro scale, but also seeing very close detail of um, of, of surfaces because that's what's going and that's what's going to reveal to you. Um, the most probably about the state of your state of your object. What I'm getting here is also there seems to be this diagnostic thing going on, and and like you know you examine you you know symptoms and signs, then you go and request your imaging, and then you find out a little bit more about what's going on deep down inside. Yeah, that's um, that that's about it actually. <laughs> <laughs> that's a reasonable summary. So, Julie, why don't you also tell us about your own personal background? Okay, so. Um, I trained as a conservator of archaeological material at the Institute of Archaeology in the University of London. It's now part of uh, University College London, but it was a separate institution when I was there in the late 1970s. 
And I subsequently did a mixture of internships and um, jobs in uh, whoa, Stoke-on-Trent, um, Oxford, um, Denmark, Japan, Hong Kong. And then I ended up in the Fitzwilliam, which is um, part of Cambridge University as their conservator of antiquities. And that meant looking after the archeological collections, which are from Egypt, Greece and Rome and the ancient Near East. Um, and we've grown gradually in terms of our conservation department and the specialisms, the different specialisms that we, specialisms that we cover. For example, we have you know, conservators for manuscripts and printed books and conservators for works felt on paper. And um, we've also, in recent years begun to develop a heritage science section. And in my last few years at the Fitzwilliam, I retired last year, um, I was head of conservation and scientific research. And, you know, with all the sort of additional responsibilities that such a role brings, um, time for my own research and conservation practice was really, really squeezed and concentrated into the thing I'm most interested in, which as you know, is the technology and conservation of Egyptian coffins. For most of my time at the Fitzwilliam, I've also um, been able to work annually for a few weeks um, on site in Egypt. And um, most recently, well, since 2007 on the coffins conservation project at the city of Amarna, um, which is the city of the of the Pharaoh Akhenaten and Queen Nefertiti, as everyone knows, I think. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, look, look, that's absolutely fascinating. And one could understand why this is a global experience that people have in this field. Something that I, you know, think is a very much fascinating part of what goes on. But I'm going to try and keep it ethical, although at the same time, throw you into the ravages of the last part of the crash test. Which number would you like, Julie? Well, I think I'm in a terrible position here because I don't have <laughs> choices. I would have chosen all the ones that have already been chosen, but, which I've known them, but never mind. We've heard that one before, I'm afraid, Julie. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, I shall show my ignorance now in four questions. Um, uh, number eight, please. Uh, oh, yes. Sorry. That's the Terracotta Army um, from Xi'an. There you go. Yeah, I did yourself. Uh, so have you ever found yourself in a fight? <laughs> I put fight in um, inverted commas here because I sort of, you know, I didn't want to sort of suggest that anyone was bar brawling or, or found yourself accidentally near or around or I don't know, sporting, whatever. Uh, well, I suppose some of my most uh, vicious encounters probably were on the hockey field at school. Um, <laughs> where I was used to play on the wing, I was terrible. But I mean, those, I, you know, small girls with hockey sticks are pretty brutal, actually. And I would say that, I, that was my worst fighting experience. Yeah, yeah, that sounds absolutely terrifying. Okay, well, what's your next number then? Uh, 10. So can you see what that is? Is that a Benin bronze? It is indeed. Yes. So 13th century from the Edo people in Nigeria. Absolutely. And what, just tell the listeners, just in case they can't see the image, what is that a bronze of? I think it's a cockerel. Yeah. Okay. So the question is, what's your favourite way to eat chicken? I prefer <laughs> not to, actually. <laughs> oh, yeah. Fine. How assumptive of me. I, so that's absolutely. No, no, well, I, no, I mean, I call, no, I'm a, so, what I call a, a social meat eater. I don't really cook it. I will eat it if people give it to me. But um, uh, I, I, I suppose probably grilled 
if it's chicken, okay. which is very simple. Yeah, I should have thought about that question a bit better <laughs> then. Okay, right. Let's quickly move on to the next one. Uh, one. Oh, things going on there. Are uh, flint uh, arrowheads by the look of it? Yeah. Do you know where the provenance is? No, I don't. Sorry, exactly. No, where though. No. no. Okay. No. So those are Native American, and they're oh, probably. Right. Um, uh, amongst some of the um, potentially the oldest things that we've got discussed here today, because they can go back to 100,000 years, apparently. So, right. Here's the last one. There we go. So it's well, you know, we're not even having a choice there. It's number five. And there's the picture. What's going on there? It's not papyrus, is it? It's not a palm leaf manuscript, is it? No, not quite. It's um, from the West Bank. Oh, my goodness me. It's a papyrus. Yep, for, and so it's from the third century BCE. It is one of the Dead Sea Scrolls, in fact. Oh my so, goodness me! Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. No, I would not have recognised it as such. So, so I'm, do you know? I'm, I'm sorry. Um, yeah. <laughs> Don't apologise. I, I definitely should have known that one, but sorry. No. <laughs> I'm glad you've got this one. What's the oldest book or writing or script that you personally own? Well, you'll be pleased to hear that I don't have any Egyptian papyri. <laughs> <laughs> um, would be a bit scary. Yeah, you haven't you haven't been like back pocketing them from the no, museum no. collection. <laughs> no, no. I do have an early Japanese book which my husband gave to me. I mean they're basically paintings, but of course they have scripts in as well, and that's a 19th century work, and it's it's very beautiful, um very beautiful, very small but very beautiful um object. Wow. And I think that's probably I'm not sure it's the oldest, but it's definitely the best. <laughs> Yeah, lovely. Look, thank you so much, Julie. And also thank you to Dan and Ashken for playing along with that slightly different edition of The Crash Test. Okay, so let's move on to the main discussion. It's been fascinating already, and it's just, I think, going to get even better. Ashken, why don't you just tell us a little bit about the object that you have investigated um, and been involved with investigating with imaging. And why don't you have a little go at describing it for us? And I should say that for all of the conversations we're about to have, we will be posting links or one or two pictures on my Twitter feed so you people can go along and have a look at it. Yes, absolutely. I'd love to. So my project involves the Antikythera mechanism. So that's an ancient Greek calculating machine. could really be thought of as a computer. It had several gears inside it. Um, with all sorts of odd numbers of teeth um, that had all sorts of mathematics built into them to drive in a certain way so that you could predict the timing of eclipses and ancient Greek games. Yeah, I find that fascinating that the mechanism took only not only celestial timetabling, but it was very much grounded in like, when's the next World Cup, which is going on right now. Yes, absolutely. So it was definitely... Uh a tool for the ancient Greek individual to help them out, figure out when the next bad omen might be coming, good omen might be coming, um, and as you say, next games. So the circumstances under which it was found suggest that it may have been in transit from one owner or from one, you know, one location to another. It, 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 it's, it was on a, a ship that split in two, I understand, off the edge of Antikythera, which is a, an island which is just of the three prongs of the south mainland Greece. It's just off to the southeast between that and Crete. Is, is that right? Yes, that's right. So it was it, it sunk around there. I'm sorry, if I'm to be perfectly honest, I couldn't tell you. Um, I couldn't say, <laughs> talk too much about where who yeah. it could have gone from or who like there's been a lot of speculation but, um yeah do you know anything about how it was found 
Yes, I can tell you plenty about that. It was found by some sponge divers who, back in the day when you couldn't synthetically make sponge, um, you had to stick on a very heavy metal helmet um, and risk your life taking a walk down to the bottom of the sea to find some natural sponge. And they came across things that I'm sure were much more interesting, such as statues, um, great big ones that have also made their way out of the sea now and been recovered. And then they found this hunk of they don't know what. And it sat in the back of a warehouse until a few decades later when someone figured it was, this was something interesting. So that's one of those very exciting stories and that there's something languishing. And do you know when presumably some scientists thought to take a second look at some point or a conservator or someone? Someone had pulled it out and I believe they realised it was it was these interesting pieces. But the most significant work was done by someone called Derek Solar Price, who put it under x-rays and that's you know, the conventional 2D x-rays and started tracing out these gears and starting to map together what was this device doing? What could it do? What was it for? Okay, and that then prompted, presumably, a bit later on for the X-ray computer tomography to be applied to these objects. And we should just say, can you tell us a little bit about that technology? Because it's not quite, it's not clinical CT, is it? It's slightly different. That's right. It's um, industrial CT, which, from my understanding, uses a lot more energy is typically used for inspecting airplane turbines for defects and routine mechanical checks. Um, and this was for, of course, imaging a hunk of corroded metal. Yes, yeah, so this kind of green crusty thing, but with the x-rays revealing something of quite marked craftsmanship, the likes of which kind of didn't appear in Europe for, a, you know, almost a millennium after, because this was around, we think, dated back to, what, 200 BC, maybe. And there were some big bits and some small bits. This was a CT of one of the big bits, am I right? Yes, so I worked on what was the largest fragment of 83, roughly, potentially, um, and it had the main wheel within it, which drove, which a lot of the driving of the mechanism. All didn't go quite to plan with the imaging for that. Tell us, this is where your skills and expertise come in. What happened there? Well, that's right. So the CT imaging of the mechanism happened in about 2005, which was a huge endeavor by people that did not involve me because I was about 10 years old, <laughs> uh, in, in which they transported a prototype uh, industrial x-ray CT machine um, by a company called Xtech uh, CT who are now known uh, who are now part of Nikon Metrology and they shipped over this great big scanner and they went over to the Archaeological Museum of Athens and they with the agreement of the Greek government to undertake this project and scan as much of it as they possibly could and um, so it came to the large piece in which they wanted to scan and being a prototype scanner, one of the, what was meant to be the most promising scan of the highest resolution didn't quite go to plan. And it was suspected that when they came to try and produce the final image that the object had either moved or some of the projections, so that's the 2D x-rays as it spins around, um, just weren't captured. Can I put in the hypothesis that there could have been an earthquake during that, uh, or a little shudder during that point, or a lorry going past, perhaps it's less exciting. I'm going to leave it on tenterhooks there, so until we find out what we come to next. So Dan, I'm going to ask you to tell us about the main object we're going to focus on today. What is that, Dan? Sure. So 
kind of unusually, I suppose, this object isn't in the collection of the British Museum, but I wanted to emphasize the collaborations that I'm kind of frequently involved in with other institutions. So this, this object is part of the Galloway Horde, and the Galloway Horde is a, is a Viking Age hoard, so a, a collection of precious artifacts, which um, is now part of the collection of the National Museum of Scotland. And the hoard was discovered by a metal detectorist in 2014 in Galloway, southwest Scotland. And it's thought to date from the 6th to the 8th century and buried around about 900 AD. And uh, one very interesting object from the hoard, which I want to talk about, um, was a small silver vessel which was carefully wrapped in woolen textiles. And very like, rarely, I suppose, the, the woolen textiles survive, but they're also stuck to the outside of the vessel. And although most of the surface of the vessel is covered, you can see the hints of decoration underneath. So that's where I got involved. So already these fantastic images of these be beautiful craftsmanship and care and attention are, are, are being conjured. But when people go and look at the image, what will they see in its current state? It's not quite what you would expect in terms of a, a shiny metal object covered in cloth. Sure. So it's it's quite heavily corroded and the, the, the fabric, the textile attached to the outside is obviously covered in a lot of dirt. So... It's it's not the most visually appealing to look at as it is now, but at the same time, it's it contains a whole wealth of information, which is very important and very, you know, you don't always get textile surviving in archaeology. So it's very fascinating to have something like that. And so this is where the kind of clue comes in, is that technology is needed to look in look inside and perhaps remove these layers or slice through these objects without destructively taking them apart or, or picking bits apart. Obviously, maybe micro analysis of sampling, but we need another way to look inside them. Exactly. So the the curator in the National Museum of Scotland is um, Martin Goldberg, he's a senior curator. And he, he is leading research into the hoard, and he was very interested to know what this decoration was under the vessel. And he had taken it to some x-ray facilities closer to his um, facility in Scotland, but they weren't able to get a very good picture of what they were looking at. Because this vessel is silver, it's very hard to image using x-rays. As, as anyone who's ever tried to take an x-ray CT of a piece of metal will know, you get very large image streaking artifacts, for example, and and you, it was completely obscuring the, the decorations that he was trying to see. The, um, the system we have in the British Museum can run up to very high voltages, so 450 kilovolts, um, which means that we sometimes can see decorations in metal like silver and gold. So Martin Goldberg got in touch with us and asked if he could bring the object to have a look. In the British Museum and of course we were very excited to work on such an iconic collection. That's the next level for CT isn't it is the fact that you have these machines that can really ramp up the energy which means you get less artifact you get better penetration you get more photon passage and less of this artifact manifesting in the imaging whereas in the clinical environment we have to try and overcome that in other ways because obviously the ionizing radiation is damaging. But I just wanted to explore with you was the setup of the sort of the CT type scanner that you have now at the museum, because I actually visited the British Museum with Julie in 2015, but I don't think it was there at that time. Dan, tell us what that setup is and how it works when it was installed. Sure. So it was actually probably being installed around about that time. So we, we commissioned the lab on my first day in the museum, which was January 2017. 
fast um, work <laughs> yeah yeah in the in at the deep end so it's a very interesting lab it's a it's a large concrete bunker and inside is a big crane attached um, at ceiling level and suspended from the crane are an x-ray tube on one side of the room and a flat panel detector on the other side of the room and you can move the tube and the detector in three dimensions all around the room and in between the tube and the detector is a turntable and we actually can put statues on the turntable anything up to 2000 kilograms can go on there so it's a very wow. large scale it's designed to look at as much of the british museum collection as possible so as well as being able to do industrial radiography of statues we can also do ct scans of smaller objects and, and as I said, the, the tube runs at up to 450,000 volts, which is about three times the voltage you use in a medical CT scanner so that we can go through stone and we can go through metal and we can go through thick yeah. material. It, it's, um, it's a very quirky piece of equipment, I would say, but it's very flexible and very versatile. That's amazing. So the object rotates, not the actual panel and source. Okay, yeah, so similar to micro CT setups. Right, thanks ever so much, Dan. Julie, why don't you tell us about the main object that we're going to discuss? Well, you won't be surprised to hear it's a coffin. It's anthropoid shape, it's highly decorated, and it's part of what we often call a nested set. So there's a mummy board, which would have lain on top of the mummy, which would have been inside an inner coffin, which would have been inside an outer coffin. So, you know, think of a Russian doll sort of construction. That's, that's what this coffin set is. And it was acquired in uh, 1822 at Thebes, so modern day Luxor in Egypt by two Cambridge alumni who brought it back and gave it to the university. And we have both coffins and the mummy board. We don't know what happened to the mummy. We don't know if the mummy ever left Egypt, but it's not, it's not in Cambridge anyway. Um, the coffin dates, uh, coffin set dates from about 1000 BC, um, which comes within the third intermediate period. And the clue here is in the title, is in the word intermediate, because this is a period of several hundred years of sort of um, you know, um, political, social, economic disruption between two more subtle periods. And that's an important point that we can come back to. And it belongs, Coffin Set belongs to a man called Nesfor Shafit. And he uh, worked on the most important institutions in Egypt at that time, which was the temple at Karnak. And his job titles, as written on his coffin, are supervisor of temple scribes and supervisor of craftsmen's workshops. So he was a pretty important guy and he certainly had access to the best materials and the, um, the best craftsmen for making his coffins. And they're uh, a very, very um, intricately decorated. So as well as the sort of the carved and painted faces, um, and figures of, of, of the figure of Nesboshefit himself on each part of the coffin. Um, there are, there's very dense um, bands of inscription that, um, alternating with religious scenes and winged gods, you know, spread across the coffins. And it's full of painterly effects, very cleverly painted, very cleverly observed. And there are lots of sculptural effects as well, um, with parts of the decoration actually sculpted out, uh, you know, uh, built up out of, out of the pigment Egyptian blue. So it's a, a very sophisticated and very accomplished piece of work. But the woodwork underneath this very beautiful coffin is quite frankly 
um, a bit of a dog's breakfast, um, which is sort of peculiar. The hold it there, because I'm going to put a little bit of tender hooks on that, and we're going to come back to that element because that's what the imaging is going to reveal. So thank you so much for the introduction to the to the piece. It is quite a remarkable thing, and I just can't believe I've actually been able to touch it and lift it up and not drop it. So the family will definitely have just raised an eyebrow that I was allowed to be anywhere near that. Ashkan, let's come back to you because where we left you was the point where the imaging hadn't quite gone to plan and the what should we say the sinograms which are kind of the it's the data from which which is acquired from the scan was not all that was expected and that had the effect of not enabling the imaging to be reconstructed in a way that was meaningful is, is that right do you want us to take us on from there yes that's correct um so Normally, I'd suppose if your scan didn't go quite to plan, you would just take it again. Um, and that's not to say that they didn't take multiple scans, but it was a very set uh, window in which they could be doing scanning. And I think in some cases they were scanning around the clock in the allocated time in which the, the Greek authorities and the Greeks themselves uh, gave permission for an international team to come and acquire these images. But fortunately, being what it is meant that there was a project that I could do for my undergraduate degree. That's where I saw that opportunity and I thought it's great. I can have a look at what's going on. And um, Tony Freeth, who was one of the leading scholars on that big imaging project, uh, had got in touch with the medical physics department, particularly Adam Gibson, um, Professor Adam Gibson, and said, there's something here, there's something here to be looked at as, can we reconstruct this while make, correcting for this error? So the uncorrected imaging was just not up to scratch. Is that right? That's right. So the reconstruction in the end looked blurry. It was almost like a ghost. It is effectively, if you take two sets of images and try and re reconstruct them together, you, you have a sort of ghost-like effect. But why is this important? Because there's something about the mechanism that is truly fascinating just beyond its construction. That's right. I think what you're alluding to there is the fact that it just had a lovely manual on it to tell you just what it does and somewhat how it works. Um, it had lots of inscriptions and writings. And given how the level of detail that this object goes down to, you really couldn't afford any sort of blurriness. So there are these glyphs which appear. I think they're called glyphs, aren't they? And the corrected reconstruction did enable you to see more of these. Um, obviously not all, because there are other factors involved, but you, you substantially improved the quality of the imaging. So yeah, these ancient Greek letters, or Greek letters as they are, um, could, be see, could be transcribed from a higher quality image. So um, some of the scholars have revisited what they had originally transcribed from the slightly lower quality image to, and looked at this higher one and they've made corrections because you know some things they're sure on some things they're not so sure on those ones that they weren't so sure on they can now with a bit more confidence transcribe what they read and what was the actual nitty-gritty of the work that you did the engineers in imaging because you know, you take this ancient Greek computer, this ancient computer, you have no idea what it's going to look like. What is the inside of it meant to look like? You have some idea, of course, from the radiograph, but what is it meant to look like? So what they did was they stuck an Allen key in along with it. So this Allen key rotated around. And what I did in my project was I essentially plotted how it moved around along with the scan to in order to figure out where things might have moved or where things might have gone missing. And that is what enabled 
us to figure out that there are about 25 projections missing in this one particular point in time for who knows why from this prototype scanner. And it enabled us to essentially shift all the other images into their correct angle that was expected for reconstruction. So was that fortuitous uh, on behalf of the people setting up the scan or did they think, look, this is a sensible thing? If I'm understanding correctly, they actually sort of had some kind of marker. Is that right? Yes. So the object itself, it's a corroded piece of metal, so it's very fragile. So it was set on a supporting structure, which had all sorts of nails in it to make sure the structure doesn't move. And within it was an Allen key, which was <laughs> in some ways fortuitous, um, obviously for myself, but you know, it's very much intended by them so that they know what it looks like. Totally bizarrely, I have an Allen key in my hand here because I had to stop my chair from squeaking before the recording the podcast. <laughs> Dan, let's come on to you. And so we got to the point of, look, we've got this corroded object, metal and material around the outside of it. And we know about your scanner setup. What happened next? So the vessel and, and the group of other objects from the hoard were brought down to London by Martin, curator at National Museum of Scotland, with Mary Davis, who is a conservator at National Museum of Scotland. And I took a CT scan in our large quirky X-ray imaging lab and I used the full energy because I knew I was going to need it. So I was at 450 kilovolts and, and I took a CT scan of the vessel. And as we uncovered the decorations on the vessel, Martin was very surprised and he was very excited about what he saw in the decorations. So this is this vessel for context is one of only three of this type of vessel. So Viking Age vessel discovered in the UK with decorations on the surface. The other two have origins in continental Europe and the iconography suggests Christianity on these vessels. Um, what we saw on the vessel from the Galloway Horde were leopards, tigers, flaming altars, and Martin identified these as being from Central Asia, probably identified with Zoroastrianism. So this knowledge, now we know that this vessel travelled halfway across the world to end up in Scotland before it was buried as part of this hoard. And that's all discovered by looking under the textile, the wrappings without disturbing them. And you've been able to create some fantastic reconstructions. Has that been thanks to the scanning? Yes, that's right. So using the CT scan, a, a company called ThinkC3D, they, they converted the CT scan into a, into a 3D surface scan, and then they 3D printed and made a replica of the, of the vessel. And there was actually a major exhibition in, in the National Museum of Scotland last year on the Galloway Horde. And because there is still research ongoing onto the vessel, the vessel itself wasn't on display in the exhibition, but the CT scan as, as movies in the exhibition and the 3D re replica of the, of the vessel were on display in this exhibition, minus the textile, of course. Have you removed anything from inside or has it been the scan that's told you what's in there? So the, the vessel was actually, it did contain a number of interesting objects, but they were, they were removed prior to the the vessel coming to the British Museum because the, the vessel wasn't sealed in any way that, that meant it would be destructive to open it. 
So it was robust enough makeup that you felt confident in taking the stuff up. How do we think it got there? What's your theory? Well, I don't know an awful lot about this topic, but we know all about the Silk Road and we know about trade between civilizations from China all the way to the UK happening throughout this period. So it's very possible that there was trade involved. Obviously, we're, we're talking possibly this vessel traveling for generations before ending up in Scotland. Yeah, absolutely. There's a travel through time as well as through geography here, isn't there? Yes, because there, there may be several centuries between the manufacture of this vessel and the burial of the hoard. So it's very interesting. You, you know, your mind comes up with all sorts of stories about the vessel being passed down through generations or or traded between different people throughout time. So there's lots of there's lots of great theories that pop out of a discovery like this. Yeah, Ashkan. So you mentioned that it had potentially uh, Zoroastrian origins, and I was curious, does, where does that geographically place its origins? I don't think we really know for sure. Um, Martin proposed Central Asia, but I don't know if he has a particular country in mind for the origin. So does one look for similar iconography or similar objects in other collections? Is that the kind of one of the points of reference? Did, did anything crop up? I think so. I think that's the ongoing research at the moment that Martin's involved yeah. in. Exactly. To look at, yeah, exactly. Um, different different countries and around that time period, what kind of designs were they producing and see if there's any links that can be found. But it's, it's, it's very much an ongoing project. <laughs> Julie, let's come back to you. We left our discussion on Nespoershvit at the point of which the coffin was a bit of a state. This is the inner coffin that you had planned to take a little bit further. Take us forwards from that point and what your ideas were and how you set about the next steps. Okay, well, um, the, 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 the point is that with all the sections of the coffin, um, all the parts of it, obviously we did conventional x-radiography, which we can do in the museum, and we could sort of start to get an understanding of the outer coffin and the mummy board, but the inner coffin was completely incomprehensible, very complex images, I had no idea what I was looking at really. Um, so, but uh, what's sort of particularly interesting about this is that, um, you know, researchers were starting to explore emerging evidence of the, re, um, the reuse of wood in the production of Egyptian coffins contemporary with ours. And, you know, more startling, given the long-held beliefs about uh, Egyptians, the Egyptians' relationships, relationship with death and eternity, um, they were also starting to see the refashioning of coffins, of ancient coffins. And um, so although there's nothing evidence on the surface of this coffin from the complexity of what we were seeing on the radiographs, we were starting to wonder if we were seeing reuse in, in, the, in the basic wooden construction of, of the coffin. Reuse suggests something going on there, something <laughs> perhaps not so above board, shall we say, Julie? Yeah, I think it's, well, obviously, this is still, um, obviously, I'm not an Egyptologist, I work with Egyptologists, but we, it's, uh, it's, um, uh, I think there are several things going on. As I said, you know, this is a, this is a period of sort of um, instability. And we know that it was also a period of uh, tomb robbery, probably because the economic situation was quite bad and, and so on. So, um, so some of it does seem to be from 
uh, tomb robbery that was happening and the breaking up of coffins, the removing of gold from coffins. This is, you know, recorded and people were put on trial and so on, in, in, you know, ancient, anciently for, for this type of um, damage to, to, to tombs. I'm thinking of Birkenhair just sort of being put up for trial there <laughs> after having, you know, maybe got away with maybe 10 or 11 and then finally the, the bobbies tap them on the shoulder and say, uh, right, time's up. Uh, yeah. But this is obviously a long time between before um, before broken <laughs> hair. But we also have um, there there are also um, instances where um, it it seems that um, you know it it may have been something that a coffin was possibly kept in the family but was reused later. And so as I, that's what I was saying. You know, it, it starts to alter the way that we understand how the Egyptians' relationship with with eternity really and what was what, what were actually the important things if it was possible to reuse coffins it's not it's not all nefarious dealings by any manner it seems um, but there's a lot more sort of investigation to 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 do on that and sometimes what you see on coffins there's a lovely example actually of um, a coffin in the British Museum where in fact there is just a complete new layer of decoration over the top of the old decoration and um and you can see where that top layer is 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 damaged um that the um the earlier um uh, decoration is there so that's through natural decay so there is sometimes because of cor corrosion or, or, or decay you get to see those things rather yeah. than it being initially discovered yeah yeah, uh, and, yeah, 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 exactly. And the, and the and the thing about Nesbrochef it was that really nothing's nothing much was visible on the surface. And so actually for Nesbrochef it, that's one of the examples where the uh the, where you know something has been taken right back to the woodwork and elements from other coffins have been put together to make this coffin. But we only discovered that through the CT scanning. Tell us what CT scanning you did and why you thought to do that. Well, you know, there's a very long history of the CT scanning of um, Egyptian mummies and huge amounts of sort of information have been uh, revealed from that, but less um, of, um, of coffins. And, but sometimes these have been done sort of incidentally because the, the mummy's been stuck inside a wooden or a cartonage coffin. And, and you can see that there's a massive amount of information to be revealed. Um, there were, when we started doing this, there were very few published studies of this, um, uh, of the CT scanning of wooden coffins. But I had recently been to a conference at which somebody um, from the Vatican Museums had given a paper about the CT scanning of um, a mummy board. And um, I thought, hmm, okay. <laughs> and of course, we already had through um, the exhibition um, Silent Partners about artist mannequins, which a colleague of mine um, had, uh, had worked with, uh, Tom had worked with, with her on the investigation of these wooden, um, wooden metal artist mannequins from the 18th and 19th century. So that was our initial link with, with, with Tom to see whether there was, um, we could actually do something with the coffin of Nesbor Sheffitt as well. Yeah, it wasn't the first mischief that I'd got up to with the museum, was it? We came onto this amazing project and you came up with the idea of, or, or rather the proposition. Yes. Well, you clearly had form, so we thought you'd be interested in this one as well. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, so that, so that was how that, was how that started. Um, obviously, uh, you know, carting a 3,000, 
a 3000 year old coffin um, to Addenbrooke's hospital is no um, is not something you take on lightly but we are quite we are you know, very used to using moving large fragile objects and uh, so it uh, the coffin traveled so it's just down the road isn't it so it's not huge yeah. distances but you still it's a substantial <laughs> undertaking Yes, and I have to say, actually, that one thing one, in our packing of an object like that, something that we use all the time in our work is medical vacuum cushions, the big sort of um, um, yes. uh, life, you know, body, full length body ones, because they're fantastic for shaping around an object and then pulling a light vacuum on it to completely mobilise it. They work just as well for coffins as they do for people. So, so we use those in supporting this object um, taking it to the hospital. We put it on the, our flash scanner, didn't we? Which is a dual yeah. energy scanner, um, which we used for the dual source kind of setting on it, which because this is a human length object, we didn't want to overload the tube. So that this was the flash scanner, which may no longer be there, but it was the very first of its type in the country installed in Addenbrookes in 2009, I believe. So very cutting edge and, and really important as we've moved forward <laughs> in terms of technology. The idea was we wouldn't overload the tubes, we could turn all our settings up as much as the machines would allow and run through this very long you'll know the exact length Julie but I know it's one and three quarters a meter or something yeah, in that order yeah. yeah something yeah like. and then and then we could get that all through in one scan and we and we had some challenges with the edges because the gantry width was just encroaching on the, the field of reconstruction and we were able to widen that field of reconstruction called extended field of view to try and fit the edges in but the top and the and the body and the feet was all in one and then we sort of shifted it from side to side to get the edges didn't we so what i remember from that day and from every time that we scan something is the excitement in the room as the images are coming through so tell us what you felt as we were looking at that well I think it was um it I mean it was remarkable for us because we could suddenly see with sort of great clarity um the uh the the features which had been completely uh, incomprehensible by looking at the conventional radiographs and it sort of started to make sense I have to say of course <laughs> it it took many, many hours of scrutiny of the scan images afterwards to begin to understand really what we were looking at. Um, but uh, it, was a, it, it was a real moment of revelation for all of us. And I think it was quite exciting for, for you and the, and the radiographers who were with us as well, actually to see, you know, there's a, a remarkable, well, I said it's a bit of a mess actually inside this coffin, but it is a very remarkable piece of construction. Yes, absolutely. Straight away, we were able to identify damage. We were identify some packing of something into a, a gap, how there was a butterfly cramp that was sort of trying to hold together a longitudinal crack. And I should say also that as we've gone on and done more scanning with, with Adam Brooks, what happens is that the radiographers, they gain from this fantastic experience and they can go on to, to do some professional development and all kinds of things like forensics. So that's been a fantastic way to be able to support um, development in the department on the back of doing this kind of scans in a, in a clinical environment what did we then learn going forwards through the analysis the you know and you said yourself that it took some time to get used to it but I will say uh, Julie you were a, a very much a natural at handling the sort of imaging review software that a radiologist might do day in day out to, to try and get the most out of the complexities of what was going on tell us what what you then gleaned from that yeah 
I mean, I should say about that as well, that I know there's, you know, with you, we, the, also we did manage, we did lots of sort of 3D visualizations of some once we understood this, but for me, looking at it, it really was just sitting, looking with the three different views, um, running uh, through them side by side all the time, just to get, a, to be able to see each feature in those three different planes, um, and, and and that was the thing that was that was revelatory. Although it, yeah, it took a long time. So what we could see, well, the first thing that was really wonderful that we could see was that we can see a huge amount of inf more information about the actual basic sort of carpentry techniques. So um, we know how the Egyptians cut their wood from a big tree trunk. You would do, you know, do through and through sawing. So it's like if you, you know, sort of Swiss roll on its end and cut it in slices that way, that's how they would cut a tree trunk, those tangential sawing. The problem with that is you, you get um, differential warping, therefore, within the heartwood and the sapwood and what we couldn't see um, except when we looked at the transverse sections through the coffin were that they had actually placed the um, boards so that they had the heartwood facing in a different orientation in adjacent boards so that they were actually counteracting the, the, the warping that they knew was going to happen within these within these planks so it was details like that um, we could also see, of course, um, all the um, all the joints. We could see the chisel marks in the bottoms of mortise holes. We could see if they drilled a hole rather than they'd actually chiseled it out. Um, but we could also see that it was made up from a large number of very small uh, pieces of wood, um, as well as the main planks. Lots of things sort of pushed into holes made up with plaster, pushed into holes as well, um, lots of gap filling, but also that it was full of redundant joints. It was full of right. things that had been cut across or that didn't go anywhere um, and that had no relationship to the structure of the coffin as we, as we see it now. Yes. So this, these were the, these were the clues to the, the fact that these may may have been reused or were reused parts. Yeah. And and the thing was the thing that told us. I mean, we know that the Egyptians, you know, wood wasn't particularly abundant, and we know that they reused wood. That's very clear from all sorts of other things. But the but the important thing here was that we could see that this was being re, this had been reused from an earlier coffin, and we could tell that from the length and shape of the sides of both the box and the lid of the coffin and the way that these had been reshaped um, to make uh, to make the coffin from something which had had always been an anthropoid but it had been um, it had a, a, a you know straighter sides and they had cut into the structure to make something a bit more sort of curvaceous defining the knees and um, the uh, the thighs the lower leg and so on but then they had also built that up on the interior so overall you know we were able to deduce from all of this um, and particularly from the sort of the hidden parts of old closure mechanisms for the coffin we were able to deduce that we had most likely two sides of the same older coffin box and one side of the um, an older coffin lid which belonged with those two sides of older box so something had been really broken up and then put back together to make 
this new coffin and then hidden under all this fantastic decoration. So you would never know. Amazing. I, I tell you, there is one uh, question I'd like to ask. What was the wood type that was involved? Because that would be a totally different type of analysis, but it is of interest because mm. of the drive and perhaps need to reuse. So what were the wood types there? Well, um, <clears throat> yes, they're also a mixture. We, we, there's a lot of sycamore fig, which is um, the sort of native wood in, in, of, of Egypt that you find to make things like coffins, because it was one of the few trees that had big enough pieces of wood to be able to make coffin planks. But there was also a lot of um, cider, Sisyphus, um, and um, also uh, tamarisk, um, a bit of everything actually, which again, mm. is, you know, mm. tells us a little bit about, um, uh, uh, about what was going on in the workshop, perhaps, in terms yeah. of using materials that were actually lying around or that there was a great mixture of things there. So, Ashkan, let's come on to whether you have ever been involved in anything similar to this, because clearly you hinted that this is something that you were drawn towards after you've done this project in which you published a, a fantastic paper that we'll also reference. Have there been any other projects? No, quite frankly. OK, so that's that's the straightforward answer, I guess. Would you like to seek out some other involvement in these, this kind of thing? Is that a flash in the pan or do you think that it could be a peripheral for you? No, I think it's definitely something I'd like to do more of in the future. Um, and I myself went into computing and medical imaging as it were but there's no no reason why I couldn't go bigger um, and it's one of the reasons also why I'm quite attracted to why I've started working with micro CT images as well. Yeah so not just the clinical scale and this was a sort of an introduction to that micro scale yeah? Yes exactly yeah. So what I also wanted to ask you then, because, you know, CRASH is clinical radiology academics, but we don't hold ourselves just to that because uh, there's far more in the world that's interesting than just a bunch of radiologists talking. Have you sort of had interactions in your current role with radiologists? What kind of things do you get up to that might involve having radiologists in the same room or on the same project? Yes. So, well, funny you should say that as my principal PhD supervisor is the former Rotkin professor, is it, from a couple of years ago, jo Joseph Jacobs? Yeah, yeah, no, Joseph friend of the Jacobs. podcast. Yeah, what a coincidence. <laughs> yeah, so I, I work very closely with him, of course, as my principal supervisor and um, make sure I stay clinically relevant in all of my technical thinking of what I might think is cool, but might, might not necessarily be useful. Oh, he sounds like a really harsh taskmaster on that front. I'm gonna, I'm gonna have to take it, take it up with him on that. If, if you're listening, Joe, I, I know that's just not the case. <laughs> thank you, thank you, Ashken. Uh, Dan, let's ask you again. Your role must just involve scanning it on as much as you could possibly get your hands on. But are there any items that stand out for you that you'd also like to tell us about? Okay, so I want to talk about a, a small clay writing tablet from ancient Mesopotamia and it's from the third millennium BC and it's covered in a script called cuneiform which is the earliest known form of, of writing and this object was discovered in in the south of Iraq and became part of the collection of the British Museum in 1896 and what what we actually have in this case is a, a clay tablet which is sealed inside an envelope which is also made of clay and uh, the, the tablet is almost completely hidden inside the envelope. So what, what, what I wanted to be able to do was to read the writing on the tablet hidden inside the envelope. And 
to make cuneiform writing, you, you take a stylus, like a piece of reed is typically used in the shape of a wedge and you press it into the surface of the clay when it's still soft. So what I was expecting was that there would be air holes inside where the, the impressions of the cuneiform were. So clay inside clay would, would be very tricky to image in any other way than using X-ray CT. So when I looked at this, this tablet in the envelope, I, I had a feeling that we might be able to read the writing on the inside. So I took a CT scan using the exact same equipment that we used for the, for the Galloway hoard. And, and then we were able to uncover the writing on the inside. And, and I, I did virtual slicing through the, through the envelope, revealed the writing, which of course hasn't been seen in 4,000 years. But I, I don't know how to read cuneiform because I'm a physicist. No. <laughs> so luckily for me, I work in the British Museum and there aren't many people in the world who can read this kind of script, but we have some in the British Museum. So I went to a curator, Jonathan Taylor, who's a, who works in the, the Department of the Middle East in the museum. And I asked him if he could um, tell me what it said. And it turned out that I had it upside down. But <laughs> when he flipped it around again, he, he translated it for me. And I, and I have the... The, the text here it's um 2427 kilograms of wool he converted it into the metric system for me as rations for the men of the village gaka under the supervision of the chief minister via mr shesh otumu from mr aradmu governor of the city Giasu, have been withdrawn sealed with the seal of mr babati year shusin became king so what we have is a, a large city, Giersu, which is, I think, the, the most ancient city known at the moment in Iraq, in present-day Iraq. Um, they were distributing wool in very large quantities to the people of a small village called Gaka. And this is an administrative document, and it details the amount of the wool, the people involved in this transfer, the year in which it took place, and, and the envelope which was sealed around, presumably to protect the contents from being tampered with, or in case of a dispute, they would open the tablet. Sorry, I was just going to ask you about the clay covering, because clay on clay doesn't sound like you're the best, but it's it, you, you think it's some kind of security seal, and maybe they might have been at that time fired differently or of slightly different, maybe there was some kind of way of just cracking it open to reveal the contents as a sort of tamper mechanism. Sure, that, that's that's the working theory. Um, in, in the case of this envelope, it was rolled over with what's called a cylinder seal. And there was a line in the text which is sealed with the seal of Mr. Babati. So this seal was just like a, a wax seal on an envelope. It was his official seal, which was used as a, a guarantee of authenticity and to, to link it to him. And that was rolled over the surface of the clay when it was soft, which of course, in this case, pushed the clay envelope into the clay tablet and, and in this case has fused them together. There are other clay tablets inside envelopes where there, there is a, a clear void between them and you know in theory if you wanted to you could destructively open the, the envelope. In the case of this one if you tried to open it you would destroy the entire mm. object. Mm. Well, that is absolutely amazing. Now, linguistics and the history of language is one of my very peripheral interests, along with all these kinds of things. Am I right? It's not uncommon that it should seem quite menial or functional, these scripts, because actually it's probably why these scripts were invented in order to re as records or and receipts of transactions and accounting. Is, is that a fair reflection? Yes, there, there are hundreds of thousands, if not more, of cuneiform tablets that have been discovered. 
from ancient Mesopotamia, and they detail all sorts of brilliant little insights into ancient life, such as arguments or recipes or ad admin documents like this one, or, or proclamations or... Or curses, maybe. Maybe curses too, yeah, indeed, indeed, yeah. Dan, can I then also ask you that, that given the other objects that you have in the museum, have you ever had any involvement with radiologists? So some perhaps when there might be involving different types of, uh, of human remains or when, when there's a need perhaps for anatomists to be involved as well. Have you had any interactions like that? Yes. So uh, the, the Department of Egypt and Sudan in the museum has quite a long history of using X-ray CT in medical scanners to, to look at human mummies and in one case, a crocodile mummy. And once I was fortunate enough to be invited along to a, a scanning session. So a, a group of, of eight human mummies were taken to a hospital. And I went there with the curators involved and I was present and, and a, and a, as an, a partial, impartial observer for this process. And it was a really interesting dynamic, I have to say, because when you do a medical CT scan, you see basically in real time what's inside the person or in this case what was inside the the, the mummies and and of course the, the the interesting dynamic was that the radiologists were seeing things they weren't expecting such as the absence of organs because they were removed during the mummification process or that there were objects that were placed inside the the wrappings of the mummy or inside the body of, of the person um which the the doctors weren't expecting to see and so there was this really interesting dynamic where the the egyptologists were explaining to the doctors what they were seeing on the medical ct scans so that was very very fascinating experience to be involved in oh that does sound that i'd love to have been in that room as well oh, amazing so julie let's come on and ask you about some of the other objects that have been scanned that you're aware of that you have also been involved with um, through the museum what kind of things were you looking at and what was the you know the motivation and outcome of those okay so well we also have been uh in interested in doing um micro ct scanning particularly because um of uh, coffins we've been looking at that have very very complex surface surface layers um, and we have fragments from others of that type that we've been able to look at and we're trying to understand now um, you know ex exactly um, the construction of of those layers because these are some quite unusual surfaces um, in, in fact that we've um, seen but also just coming back uh, coming back to what Dan was saying about doing the human mummies of course, um, as indeed you will remember, um, and this was this was something which re <laughs> really stayed with us, is that we um, we also took to the micro CT scanner in the Department of Zoology the um, very very tiny bundle from a very beautiful miniature cedar co uh, cedar coffin. I mean, it's made of very high quality wood, beautifully made miniature coffin, quite deteriorated now this dates from the sort of 7th 6th century BC and inside it was a sort of a resin lump and we had expected that this would just be um, you know possibly some organs and uh, in this miniature coffin but in fact um, it turned out to be um, a, a fetus um, very uh, 18 weeks old and we understood that it was the um, youngest um, Egyptian well, baby fetus that, that, that's actually been mummified, that's been found. 
um, up to that point. And what was so sort of poignant about it was the immense care that had been um, put into this uh, preparation of this, of this little fetus, um, which had its arms ritually crossed um, across the body and was wrapped and then encased in resin in this in exquisite coffin. Um, and we, uh, I mean, there obviously, uh, we certainly didn't know what we were looking at. And so actually, of course, working with um, radiologists and also with the specialists of um, who who, were, who worked on mortality of infants as well, and looking and, you know, to understand exactly what we were seeing in there, it was, was sort of super critical. And I'd say also on a sort of more broadly as well, it's just the um, the, the pleasure and um, the benefit that we get from working in with, with, with specialists from other disciplines, because you always, you look at a coffin different, an Egyptian coffin differently to the way I look at an Egyptian coffin, you know? So when we can combine um, our skills and our different, um, uh, different perspectives on that, it's, it's really productive, actually, <laughs> really productive. Yes, and the amazing thing about that bundle was that we, we did do radiographs first and there were suspicions. Yeah. And um, this bundle also, was, we should say, could fit in the palm of a hand. It was, it's yeah. tiny. tiny. Um, and we also, we also um, asked Owen Arthurs from yes. the Great Ormond Street Hospital, whose who, who specialist interest in research is antenatal imaging. Um, so we were able to piece together from an, a number of clues what was going on here, including, you know, in terms of the size, you have to wonder about growth, um, and if growth was along a normal line, but also mineralization. Uh, but yeah, it was a, a beautiful thing to, 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 to behold, to uncover and to understand the what must have been at the time the contemporary cultural implications and perceptions over what was obviously clearly a loss to a family, to an individual, to a community, and the way that that was re uh, reverenced and prepared and preserved. That was indeed a fascinating experience. Yeah, thank you so much, Julie. Right now, look, we're coming towards the end of what's been just an amazing journey. We've understood how the CT imaging techniques, X-rays is the basis for that, have really helped reveal the inside of objects non-destructively. They've told us about perhaps aging, conservation, mechanisms, reuse, all in ways that have harnessed the ability for CT to just the way it does clinically to put before the investigator this fantastic puzzle to try and interpret. And it's been so amazing to hear from all of you about that challenge whether it be for technical reconstruction acquisitions or interpretation of that imaging that gives us so many fascinating insights into as i said our world and our history and and tells us about our predecessors which i always think is just such vital information for understanding stuff about our future let's just come on to one final question bit of fun ashkan i wanted to ask you if you could choose anything with no limitations to access what would be the artifact that you most like to scan to uncover its inner workings oh i'm really glad you added that last bit on the limitation to access mine's not quite an object so maybe cheating a little bit but and it's already had a mention so far in the episode is the tomb of qin shi huang which who is the first emperor of, of united china with who buried the terracotta army as it were um, alongside him and um, but his tomb remains sealed and unopened and from what I understand there are some surveys and attempts to do some sort of scanning 
but it seems that he has multiple walls in his main chamber and potential booby traps and of course it's a sealed room and the dry air of Xi'an might do something to whatever's in there so it would be uh, interesting to if there was some way to image that and, and get a good idea of what's going on inside I didn't say limitations on size either. Some kind of industrial CT scan, like some mega CT <laughs> would be required. Yeah, the closest I've heard of um, some Chinese scientists potentially proposing using muon radiation, which comes from the sun through the atmosphere, putting some detectors underneath. It sounds ambitious. I don't know how much detail I'll give you, but... Uh... It's an idea. That's that's remarkable. A muon is like a massive electron, isn't it? They're trying to use some kind of sort of exotic um, particles, and that's just bonkers. <laughs> I want to see that. Yeah, brilliant. Okay, and you've got any shout outs to your work, Ashcan? Anything you wanted to mention at all? Oh, absolutely. A big shout out to the Satsuma Lab in the Center for Medical Image Computing, which is where I work in. Um, if you're wondering why we're called Satsuma, it's because we couldn't hook ourselves onto just researching one thing. So we went for a random word. Right. Okay. I thought it might be the sponsor, but clearly it is fruit based. Right. Okay. Been done before, but yeah, this is uh, orangey as opposed to the other one. Thanks, Ashcan. Yeah. Dad, let's just ask you this question where you get to run around inside the sweet shop. Uh, what it, would it be that you'd like to scan if you had no limitations? So this is actually a follow on from something I've already started. So I'm lucky enough to be able to, to scan this one, hopefully in the future. So I, um, I looked at a an animal mummy recently as part of a large project of looking at ancient Egyptian animal mummies. And the, the mummy is ostensibly of a baboon. And I took a preliminary radiograph just to confirm the presence of an animal inside. And we could see the skull and we could see the spinal column of, of a baboon. And we, and we were happy that this is, this is what, what we expected there to be inside the wrappings. And as I was looking at the X-ray, I realized that I'd seen it before which was weird because I was just taking the x-ray for the first time and it, and it turned out, so my, my boss was giving a talk, the director of scientific research in the museum was giving a talk on a hundred years of our lab being in existence. And he asked me in his preparations if I could find any old x-ray images for him. So a couple of years ago, I dug out an x-ray of a baboon that was taken in 1899 which was about wow. three, three years after the discovery of the X-ray, maybe four years after the discovery of the X-ray. Yeah. And, and this baboon had come to the British Museum in 1821, so before the discovery of the X-ray, was X-rayed about 70 years later. Um, and then I X-rayed it again and then realised that it was the same baboon. And um, this baboon was identified as being a Hamadryas baboon, and they're, they're the baboons with the crests on either side of their face. And so... I would love to CT scan this baboon to learn more about if we can learn anything about how the baboon died, how the baboon lived, any any evidence of mummification. And I think we'll learn a lot more from the CT than we than we do from the radiograph. Great. Thanks, Dan. And is there anything else you'd like to shout out? Yes. Yeah, so there's um there's a great blog written by Martin Goldberg on the Galloway Horde object. I I also wrote a blog giving an overview of what I do in the museum. I think it's called Secrets of the X-Ray Lab. And also, if, if I may, there was an article which I was involved in, which was published earlier this year on ancient cancer in Sudan. And if I can send a link to that, that would be brilliant as well. 
absolutely all these will appear in the show notes and on my twitter feed thank you dan and julie unconstrained access unlimited i mean let's be sensible and not say a whole pyramid but what would you like to scan if you could well <laughs> it's nothing to do with egypt it's yeah. um i mean there are plenty of those i could have chosen but there's actually, it's a very famous object, it, which is actually in the um, Victorian Albert Museum, and it's called um, Tipu's Tiger, which is a near life-size sculpture of a tiger attacking a European who is um, making wailing noises and banging his hand against his, his mouth. And there's also, it's a sort of a musical semi-automaton. And I know that part of the tiger's body comes off and it's possible to see this little organ literally that can be played that's inside the, the, the tiger. But from what I understand about this, there are all other, many other sorts of pipes and various bits and pieces that help to make all the different noises. It suffered a lot of, it's an 18th century piece, but it's suffered, a, it's been restored a lot. It suffered a lot of damage during the war and was um, actually, you know, partially rebuilt. I don't know if it's ever been CT scanned, but you know, given our experience with the coffins and also with the work that you know you helped us with the with the with the mannequins, those mechanical those mechanical toys, um, I think I think that would be a good one. I think that could reveal some really yeah. interesting. That, that's from India, isn't it? Is that from the Mughal, Mughal Empire? Yeah, yes, okay, yes, heard, yes, yeah, yeah. I've, yes, I've exactly. heard about that one. Another podcast. Yeah, that's got a great story. Yeah, go and find out more about that. Yeah, and have you got a shout out that you'd like to do? Well, just um, really that there's, uh, we have um, the, the website for the Egyptian Coffins Project at the Fitzwilliam Museum, and uh, a lot of the information is there, and we're adding more stuff to it all the time. There's a lot of information there about, particularly about the coffins of Nespar or Shefit that I've been talking about today, and, um, and that also has lists of um, the publications that we've done in conjunction with this, um, uh, with this project and so on. So... Um, for, our, for our project that's the place to go brilliant thank you so much all right well look, look that finally does bring us to the end of our exploration through antiquity driven by this fantastic technology driven by our excellent guests it's been an enormous pleasure to talk with you Ashkan, Dan and Julia huge thanks to each of you for coming on the podcast Thank you. Thank you. Thank <laughs> it's you. been great. <laughs> Thanks. So, look, that's it for the, well, this year. Um, a big thank you to Alex Dobson again for her support, along with the Royal College of Radiologists events team and to the college. And, of course, Sue Mercer of 1A Squared for her invaluable sound editing support and creative input. Now, as usual, show notes will be available at the RCR website. If you have any questions about what we have discussed today or would like to get in touch, about any crash-related matters, then you can email them to conf at rcr.ac.uk. That's C-O-N-F at rcr.ac.uk. Or you can reach out to me on Twitter with the handle at Tom Termas. I'm remembering that for this episode. We'll put all those links, lots of pictures, crash test grid, so you can test yourself about everything that we have been discussing today. So further information will be available also in the show notes at the RCR website. So and please do get in touch with us and let us know what you think. And how could I not mention Radiant, the Radiology Academic Network for Trainees, continuing to grow and deliver successful collaborative trainee-led research from across the UK. And you can find them at www.radiantuk.com, where you can get yourself and your training scheme involved. If you've enjoyed this episode, please make sure to like and subscribe, leave a review and share with everyone. I've been your host, Tom Termazai. Until next time, stay safe. Thank you.